podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and this week we have another great guest with us, Dorothy Shamansky, PhD. Joining us, Dorothy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kyle. I'm really glad to be here. We're excited to have you and excited to talk about a number of uh, things from your background and have you discuss some of what you've been working on and the things that you've worked on through your career with us. Uh, But let me introduce Dorothy briefly. So Dorothy is the UX strategy officer at Massachusetts-based Integrated Computer Solutions, ICS, and its design studio, Boston UX. And Dorothy has an extensive background in uh, UX design, has worked with a number of companies. But Dorothy, why don't you tell us more about your background and what you are doing right now as well? Well, I'm going to kind of start at the beginning because I think it's important. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree in sculpture with a minor in design. And you could say that I came from a background of the love of form and form making. Uh, Like I've always had an interest in the notion of ideal forms, golden ratios, such as things like that, and how those forms resonate through art and design and also through natural systems, and also that they can represent a possible universal aesthetic. I'm also interested in the symbolism of forms and semiotics, how people find meaning in forms. So for me, form is a big topic, and it's how we create beauty, feeling, meaning, and communication in the things that we make. So I bring all that to um, the design of UX. I'm also fond of mathematics and how numbers and equations define form. So it's mathematics that led me to computers. I became interested in computer graphics programming uh, with the idea of creating virtual sculptures. And this was like around 1980. So I, um, I learned how to do some programming. And then I combined those interests and ended up in a graduate program at MIT in the Media Lab. And there I was developing software design tools for designers. And so it was through that writing of software design tools that I became interested in interface design. So I was involved in interface design from the beginning when it was very crude still. Uh, This is the early days of graphical user interfaces, um, mid-1980s, around the time that the Mac first came out. But I've always retained a perspective that design, interface design will eventually get to be really good and really easy to interact with. And sort of like interacting with another human or with an animal or with the physical world as we know it. So I kind of look at everything that we've been doing as UX designers over the past four decades as um, still quite primitive and just moving in the direction of getting us to a better and a better and a better place. And so if you, again, like kind of put that all together, I'm really interested in the experience of inter- of how interacting with technology impacts people. People are multi-sensory, emotional, physical. They have a sophisticated, um, multi-level consciousness and mental processing ability. So even with the constraints of the current um, interfaces that we're working on, there's just a huge number of details and options that a designer can work with in order to create great usability. That's an amazing background. And I'm I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about some of the experience that you have and how that's influenced, you know, what you're doing now, some of the journey that you've taken and where it's brought you, uh, especially the, I think the fascinating uh, role that you talked about, uh, you know, about this idea of uh, almost the, the more artistic side of design, the form, and then the mathematics side, uh, which I, I feel like is such a 
really the intersection of design. Um, and I think that's, that's incredible. Um, but before we do dive into more of that, uh, and I'm excited mm-hmm. to, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you like to do outside of the office and outside of, of design? Well, I keep pretty busy cause I'm curious about the world. <laughs> so, um, I read voraciously. I spend time outdoors walking both in nature and even, you know, in the city or in towns, um, sometimes with friends, sometimes alone, I grow a garden, you know, I'm really interested in kind of what's happening in the world, politics, culture. Since I have a background in art, I still like to make things, you know, so I, um, kind of do a lot of stuff by hand just cause I enjoy doing it that way. Um, and I also volunteer in our town for, um, events, town events, community events, and, you know, things in the government and town government sometimes. So, and then I have a family, extended family that we all get together pretty often for dinners. Yeah, no, that's a lot. You have a number of, of, uh, spoons and items in your background. Do you make those? Well, so that is actually one of my, um, sculptures that I made that was actually made maybe early nineties. So I was already had my higher degrees from MIT and, and, um, was working on some technology projects, but I was still pretty actively doing sculpture as well. So that was just an experiment where I had a, took a bunch of wooden spoons. I had a little jigsaw and I just would cut the spoon with the jigsaw and try to come up with as many possible configurations of cutting that I could. So it was just like, how many different ways can I cut this spoon to make another shape? It was a really fun project. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so it was one of the few, one of the few sculptures that I still have. Very nice. Okay. So that, yeah, for hopefully for anybody who, who gets a chance to see some of the, the video, uh, you, you can see some of the sculpture in the background and you'll definitely want to check that out. Okay. Well, I'm excited to dive into some of the background and things that you talked about. And, you know, maybe you can expand a little bit more on that. So, you, you know, you talked about your background and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that, you worked on and a little bit about your journey, you maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what it is that you're, you're working on now. You know, what is it that you brought you to, uh, to some of the things that you're doing now and, and what are those things? Well, so I, I've always been interested in staying with emerging technologies. So I, um, I worked in a research lab for a while at MIT and then I was brought onto a project at MoMA. And this is back in the late eighties when they wanted to experiment with putting a computer kiosk in their gallery, in one of their galleries. Uh, so that was pretty, that was, that was really a fun project maybe because it was combining art with, um, interface design and technology at the time. Then I worked at MTV on interactive television in the early 90s when interactive television was like the hot thing and all the TV stations were trying to scramble and figure out, you know, we got to get prototypes going or we're going to be left behind. And so and then I've also done a fair amount of teaching at the college level in different places, Pratt Institute, NYU. I teach part time at Brandeis now. I've ended up realizing that I I really like being a practitioner. And when I had my kids, it was really nice to be in a company that was family friendly. And I like working in a small company. I like working in companies that sort of operate like startups. That's how I ended up at ICS and Boston UX because it fits that criteria. I feel very at home there. Right. Boston UX works mostly on um, embedded projects, IoT, things that relate to, uh, well, medical devices, which can be embedded. A lot of these projects can be embedded or they can be a more broad-based in, in terms of being on several platforms 
uh, or they, you know, sometimes they're just web-based tools, but they often are um, focused on medical, the, the medical field, industrial robotics, which is part of industrial. Right. When you focus on, so I, I think that that's a fascinating area to focus on, especially from a UX perspective, because one, uh, it's such an important area when we talk about um, medical devices and robotics. And it it's also, I feel like it must add another layer of challenge to both the user experience and uh, the a lot of the design, uh, because you're all of a sudden you're not just dealing uh, you know, part of it, you're dealing in, you know, in some of just the normal user interface, but you're also dealing in, you know, potentially higher stakes in a lot of cases. Uh, is that what you found? And, and, you know, what, what are some of the similarities and maybe some of the differences that you found as you're working in, in this space and in, you know, robotics and uh, the medical field and some of these other areas? Well, where there's um, safety involved, then Safety is top of the list in terms of importance. You can imagine if you're having a medical procedure and the doctor makes a mistake because they don't understand the because the interface confuses them in the device that they're using, and you know you're not going to be happy with that situation. So, um, lack of safety in certain areas can definitely cause harm, and that you know that would be medical devices automobiles, you know, vehicles, or any kind of, any kind of transportation related, um, crane operation ro- and then robotics, certain amount of robotics has s- safety issues. They vary depending on the type of, uh, robot being used. And so, uh, what's maybe interesting about that is that where safety is a concern and usually there's a regulation related to that, that companies have to uh, confirm, conform to. It doesn't mean that the whole, like the whole usability is great as a result, because usually those companies, they, they really only care about meeting the regulations and they can vary in terms of whether they care about any of the rest of usability. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of creating systems that don't require a lot of training. And um, it seems particularly important if you think about a medical device, you know, um, the less training involved, I mean, it's not training, less training is a money saving uh, strategy, but it also, again, seems like it's going to just make it easier to use this device. There'll be less opportunities uh, for problems to arise. But it's not always the case, you know, it really depends on the particular company and product and how their priorities fall out. And, um, so anyway, that's been kind of an interesting thing to me, uh, to understand, you know, that there's, there's a lot of different aspects of usability and different places are going to have different priorities in that usability spectrum. As UX designers, we hope that we can do it all, but it's not always part of the budget or the time frame. So how do you balance that? Because I feel like a lot of times regulations where in my, at least in my mind, I feel like they should be the minimum requirement. And a lot of times, kind of like you mentioned, they become the, the bar to hit. And once you've done that, then you've reached what you need from a usability perspective that then becomes oftentimes less than a great experience because you've, you've reached mm-hmm. what a lot of people view as the requirement. Um, how do you approach either those conversations of, you know, what makes for a good experience versus just hitting certain requirements? And, and then how do you design around, you know, things that have maybe lots of regulations or lots of, you know, specific requirements that may kind of constrain the, the UX experience in certain ways uh, so that they have, they, they meet the requirements, but also, you know, you have to, you want to design them in a way that, that make them very usable for, for the, the people who will actually be involved in it. You know, how, how do you balance all of that? Well, so first off, I would say that the constraints of um, the regulation don't ever 
conflict with other kinds of usability. It's, it only adds to it. So it's, it, I am actually a regulation fan because I think all regulation improves the consumer or the user experience. I mean, just like seat, people can think seat belts, you know, are annoying, but they save lives. It's like, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so I'm very pro regulation. I think in some cases the, regu- the regulations probably could be stronger than they are, you know. In terms of what's interesting, I find is that it's hard to um, ever convince people, convince clients with words about that they should be doing more or thinking about more, put, you know, say putting more um, effort into their usability, the usability of their product. But if you can slip in showing them something and it's not actually that hard to do it because when you're designing, you know, you can do a lot, you know, with little time, if you're designing and already designing certain things, you can make other things good at the same time. So once they see something is successful with users, such as, for example, they, they can pick up how to use something quicker than the client would have expected because the interface allows them to do that. Then the client is all of a sudden, this is great. Can we do more of it? And they're really happy about that. So it's all about making them happy with, you know, it's like working within the initial budget that you get, making the most of it. And then Hopeful, you know, the, the goal would be from that they see what you've done and they're like, yeah, wow, I like that. Yeah. Let's do more. Yeah. I think you've touched on a great point on being able to really demonstrate the importance and efficacy of good uh, user experience. And I'd love to hear more about maybe how you have done that because I feel like as as so many of us, you know, have really worked in, you know, the product in UX space, this is kind of an ongoing challenge of how do we really demonstrate the value of good UX and of good design in a product where there may be, you know, budget constraints or time constraints or other constraints that, you know, people feel like we just don't have time or there's just not the value to put in as much into the design or the user experience, you know, we just need to do something. So I'd love your thoughts on, you know, how, how have you done this? How have you approached this problem to show that there really is, you know, a lot of value in putting in the time and effort into a lot, the thoughtfulness behind the UX and behind the the design and a lot of the flows that go into some of this user uh, design and, and, and experience. Well, I want to preface it with saying that um, a lot of the embedded projects that we work on are, you know, in an industrial setting, they're about getting work done or going through a particular process. So they're, they're productive applications. And so it's potentially easier to see the effect of a good interface than it is when you're um, doing some other apps, you know, and, and also, yeah, there's there's just something very concrete about, you know, creating an app that replaces a process in a manufacturing uh, plant. And then they're using that app to potentially, you know, uh, make that process more efficient. It's like very, very measurable. So that's an advantage so, th- so that's the first thing is, is we're in a good place to do that. But I honestly, I just have to say that um, good usability, you achieve it just through good design. So you just have to go through this, you know, the steps of good design, which uh, again, in our case, you know, we're looking at how users do tasks without the app that we're creating for them first off. Or with what they might have now, they might have a um, an older application that they're working with. So evaluating how they're getting things done right now and 
trying to determine like what would make that more efficient or what makes it efficient. So what works for the user is just really important. So it's all about understanding the user. And then we do focus a lot on workflows in those kind of applications where you're doing a process and, you know, really think through like what, what is the workflow and it is, are there ways to do it better? And then the interface needs to represent those workflows. When, when you determine what a good workflow is and the interface needs to represent that workflow really clearly. You know, uh, readability is a big issue for us because industrial environments can be different <laughs> in terms of lighting, noise. Y- you might be standing, you might, you know, like, who knows, like all, all different kinds of setups that people are in. So, um, so we have to pay attention, a lot of attention to, can this screen have good readability given the light conditions that someone might be in or the angle that they might be using the device. So those kind of things, that's it. Yeah. I think that's great. And you've, you've touched on something else that I'm, I'm interested in, you know, how, how do you approach some of this research that, that you do? You know, you mentioned really understanding users and understanding some of the processes and flows in order to address some of these uh, problems or, or some of these usability issues. How do you, how do you go about understanding that? Um, you know, obviously each uh, company or each uh, application is probably different, but as you go in, as you start to do some of this initial research and understanding, um, you know, what are, what are some of the steps that you take in order to go in and, and really start to look at the problems and look at the environment and, and create some of these uh, this this understanding initially in order to address uh, some of the things that you're going to be doing as, as you get into you know creating the the UX and and creating some of the products that that you're designing I, I think that our methods are pretty standard um, you know in that you're ob- observing we do a lot of just talking through the processes that people use and why they use certain steps or processes that they use to achieve a goal. We don't even get to visit some of the um, sites where devices might be being used. So we might get someone on site to take videos of people using devices currently. Uh, So we kind of use anything we can to like see everything about what's going on and different people using a device as well. So that, you know, cause, cause they might use it in a different way or at a different speed or whatever, you know, the other thing is, um, of course I always want hands-on myself if any way possible, because feeling through the process myself, it's really informative to me, you know, I mean, if I'm working on say a, a welding robot arm and maybe again, because I feel comfortable with machinery and you know, tools that you make things with, um, for me to get in there and try to do that with the robot arm myself uh, is, you know, very informative to me. I can, you know, just feel the sense of like something is too far away, you know, to really find it comfortable or, um, some button is really hard to push, (laughs) you know, that's on the robot and it messes up what's happening on the interface, you know, just those kind of more subtle things. So I would say that's basically what we do. It's true that the domains, like we're working in really unique domains that have a lot of special knowledge behind them. And so we have to kind of get up to speed with that domain on a lot of projects, like not, you know, we're not going to become electrical engineers, but, you know, or crane operators, but it's like we have to know enough about the domain in order to design. And that is part of every project. Like a, I want to say like a quarter of the budget can be, I'm just like understanding all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, you know, what what are some of the things that you do and, and your team does in order to understand some of those things? Because obviously like, 
you can't become an electrical engineer or a crane operator, you know, for each new project. But, you know, how, how do you get some of that understanding? Is it, you know, obviously through some of the discussions and some of the, mm-hmm. the visits and onsite, are there other things that you do to kind of really understand and empathize and, and learn the space as well? Besides all the, you know, the stuff I just talked about, I'd say watching YouTube videos. And often that involves like sometimes watching YouTube videos of competitive products as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to see like, oh, what is somebody else doing on the on a similar kind of product gives us ideas. And uh, reading their user manuals, <laughs> which can be pretty boring. <laughs> And that's probably, um, that's probably about it, really. I, I feel like I've gone through a lot of documentation uh, as I've come up to speed on a lot of different areas. And that it's not always the most exciting reading, uh, but it can be incredibly valuable because I feel like that's where a lot of the details are, is in mm-hmm. the documentation in a lot of places. And obviously, yeah. uh, YouTube and, and other videos uh, are just really, really great resources. I think that's, that's great. I want to zoom out just a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talked earlier about the UX industry and you being part of that from a very, very early stage, uh, you know, when uh, GUIs were just a very, very early thing. And, you know, now being in what what you say is still an early phase of, of UX and you were still with rudimentary tools. Um, I'm interested in, you know, what have you seen, uh, over the course of your career, as far as, uh, the state of UX, where are we now and where do you see things going in the future? Where we are now, I, I guess maybe this is a question of what's changed, um, since I started. And I would say one of the interesting things is that there's a lot more people doing UX design, but they have a lot less training. So like 25 years ago, most of my colleagues had master's degrees and possibly PhDs. Nowadays, you know, you meet people that took a couple courses and then they got a job as a UX designer. So that's, that's really different. On the flip side of that, there's a lot more technologies that don't require a lot of training that you can be designing. I mean, I would say, you know, designing for the web in general depends on what you're doing because the web does have a broad spectrum to it. But, you know, putting together uh, some websites is way easier than working on some other kinds of projects, like a medical device, say. Um, So different skill levels are required given the spectrum of um, products that are out there. And also there's a lot more support tools and a lot of tools. There's a lot of libraries of, um, you know, code components as well as, um, you know, icon libraries, like all that kind of stuff. A lot the best practices are more developed and more well understood. So lots of support material to help people. Um, it does feel to me like corporations kind of own UX design these days, which wasn't the case years ago. It felt like technology dominated design, but, and, you know, and that may still be the case in some ways, but um, it feels like corporations have really um, come in and that's where many or maybe most UX designers work and that the corporate model is what determines a lot of how, you know, the organization of design teams. And that seems unfortunate to me, I guess, because I come out of more of like a studio tradition. It also allows people to do it and be employed. So (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's I'm, the flip I'm side inter- of that. <laughs> it, it is. And I'm interested, you know, what do you see as, you know, maybe some of the big differences, you know, studio design versus corporate design, obviously, you know, we can probably name off a bunch, but uh, w- what are the differences for you? And, you know, some of the shift that you've seen as we've moved more in that direction uh, over the last 
probably few decades, but as it shifted in that direction? I, I think it's just that corporations are interested in efficiency and also managing employees. So I'm a generalist because I had to be coming up where I came, you know, came through the um, process. <laughs> Corporations don't really care for generalists. They like specialists. Um, and it has to do with, in some ways, just what they want to, they can pay less for limit, less skills in a sense. So I think that it's people become more specialized, but isolated in their skill and, also, so people are more siloed in a way in corporations. There's less collaboration. You know, when you work in a design studio, there's more, everybody knows more and there's more collaboration among everyone. There's more of a, a love of, you're doing it because you love design versus it's a nine to five. You know, corporations kind of force you into this nine to five mentality. That's how I would see the difference. I don't, you, you've just like opened up a whole whole like area <laughs> of of uh, thought for me that I, I want to like explore, but I don't think we're going to have time of not just design, but uh, the specialization and siloing of just about everything as we've industrialized uh, most of the skills. It feels like, I, I mean, design mm -hmm. is obviously a very, very apparent one, but it feels like we've industrialized a lot of things and, and kind of siloed so many different areas and specialized. And there's probably benefits to some of that as far as both the specialization and, and um, some of the abilities to do things, you know, specific things, but then you also lose so much of the generalized skill set and the abilities to move across domains that we used mm -hmm. to have that I I think it's just so critical to see across so many of the different areas and, and skill sets that we just, we're not seeing as frequently and that yeah. you can often put different things together from different areas. And I could jump on that soapbox for a long time, but I'll probably, <laughs> we'll try not to, but I think that that's an amazingly good point. Yeah. And I think it makes better designers when they can have that broad view. So I think, you know, it's one of the things that is kind of missing now more and more. Yeah. Is, is there a way to get back to that? Um, well, so <clears throat> maybe, <laughs> I guess, I mean, what, what's also changed is that, um, you know, the tech world was really optimistic back in the eighties and nineties. And really with the advent of social media, the tech world is becoming less and less seen as uh, going to save the world. I think, you know, designers have become more cynical, but I think they're not cynical enough. I think that they actually need to take the damage that technology is doing to society more seriously. So I think that if designers can kind of rally to to make good for the world rather than be just following directions and doing um what they're told to do like hey we want to get out this product you know do the design on it like designers need to have ethics they need to understand sustainability and so i i think that um designers do need to change their viewpoint to be thinking more about how do we make, how do we fix pro these problems rather than being part of the problem. And so I, th I think there's hope there. And also I think in that process, it would solve some of the issues that we talked about. I'm not sure that it would, you know, uh, solve them completely, but that it, it would bring more of a, um, a wholeness to the profession. I feel like we don't have right now. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that's an amazingly good point on uh, design specifically and probably many of the other disciplines within technology and within the product development in general. It's it's not just yeah. about creating the thing. It's about what is the broader impact of the thing on everybody and how could we make sure that we're taking that into account. So I absolutely love that. That's, that's a 
that's a great point. Um, so let's talk about the future a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> because um, there's kind of two futures that are clear, which is this more optimistic one that I kind of just described a little bit. And then there's um, artificial intelligence is going to uh, destroy us all future. And, and that actually seems like a real concern. I'm, I take that pretty seriously. Uh, I want to acknowledge the work of, you know, there's a, a certain group of UX designers who have been talking about human-centered artificial intelligence. And I think that's a really great movement. Ben Schneiderman in particular has been uh, trying to lead some of that. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a serious, serious issue. And I think UX designers need to educate themselves about artificial intelligence not to know how to program it, but to understand its implications. Um, because we will have a certain amount of power to do something positive if people are informed. So that's one thing. Um, I know you had, you've brought up robots a few times and, um, I know I've heard this, this phrase a few times, which is that the future in the future, all devices are going to be robots. And I also pretty much agree with that. And obviously the implication is um, when you have a robot, you also have some level of artificial intelligence. So that's an interesting picture, I think, of um, you know what the future could be. And it's really all about shaping, uh, shaping the technology in a way that works well for people in the planet. And that's a kind of, uh, you know, future vision that I think is, is probably, um, I think the, the robots is real and whether they're leaning toward evil or good <laughs> or both. And then there's going to be a, a fight between them, <laughs> you know, that that is honestly where we're headed. Absolutely. And I, I think you've hit on a, a great point that it sometimes it's easy to overlook as we're looking at the future of both robotics and AI is that these things are going to have a major impact on us, on what we're doing, you know, obviously within our roles mm -hmm. in our work and things that we're doing, but we also are going to have a major impact on, on how those things are going to impact not only us, but broader society. And we get to influence those things as well, whether that, like you mentioned, is going to be for the better or for the worse. And, and kind of like you talked about, that is probably coming sooner than we think. I, I think that one of the things mm -hmm. for me is it's, it's an unknown right now. And, and that's probably the, the big point is we just, for me anyway, it's, we just don't know. And that's the, the big question is we don't know what the impact is and we don't know when it is. And so we need to start really, really considering hard mm -hmm. how we're, how we're using it, how we're going to influence it and what, what we're going to do with this, because it's not something we can continue to push off into the future. This isn't a future problem. It's very much a now problem. And that mm -hmm. is, and again, we, at least from my perspective, we just don't know what a lot of the implications are but we need to start thinking hard about them because they are coming very, very quickly. As mm -hmm. we've seen, it feels like every, every day is a new deluge of what new technologies and new things that we could list a whole bunch, but within a couple of days, it would just be um, a whole bunch more. So mm -hmm. it's both exciting, but also kind of like you mentioned, a lot of potential scary things as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I've been interested for a while in is um, the idea of NUIs or natural user interfaces. NUIs are hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand because it's a really, it's a vague concept. Basically, a NUI is anything that's more sophisticated than a standard GUI. And when I say standard GUI, I mean mouse and keyboard interaction with a screen, with a non-touch screen, essentially that kind of opens up this like, well, what, you know, what is it? It's like, can be anything. 
a um, touch screens are considered NUIs, voice is considered NUI. So that means that phones and tablets are actually NUIs. But it's again, it doesn't have that kind of clear separation like a NUI can have a GUI or be a GUI, but it's a GUI that's touch or has other capabilities. And so it's, it's really anything that allows humans to interact in more natural ways than they can than just with the classic GUI. And so then a lot of people look at that and go, well, so what, you know, that sounds like meaningless. Um, who cares? It's like, so you add things onto the GUI and you end up with a phone or, you know, a tablet or a kiosk. But I think that the um, there's a, a conceptual part to it, which is a paradigm shift in terms of thinking about interfaces. And it's that the goal is to move past the classic GUI to something that is more natural for humans. Like the GUI was amazing and revolutionary at its invention in the 1960s compared to a command line interface but it still is a way of interacting with a machine that is a layer of control chrome basically um you know it's all these constructs like input fields and buttons that are kind of derived from um machine interfaces and we can assume that we're going to get to a point where we don't need those things anymore, that the technology is more accessible to us. So there's a book that was written um, around 2010 called Brave Newy World. The authors, I have them written down. Um, the authors are Wigdor and Wixon. And they, their definition of NUI was um, you're interacting with content itself rather than with the controls to interact with content. That's also kind of hard to understand. Like when you think, okay, well, what's an example of that? Um, I think of like a touchscreen where let's say you have a news article and on a touchscreen, it's represented kind of like a like a little newspaper with the headline and a few words, and then you can actually tap on it and it expands into a whole page compared to maybe on a um, mouse controlled interface, you would have a link that says the news article name, and then you, you select the link or uh, there's a button that's read this news article. So it's really subtle but it's still going from I'm not interacting with a control. I'm interacting with something that is representing that actual content. And if you start thinking that way and you start looking at your interfaces that you've designed and say, well, can I interact more directly with the content rather than the controls? You can particularly on touch systems, you can find ways to do that. And it, again, this is the whole thing I think about um, usability is that, that it, there's, it really deals with so many subtleties that make an interface good, better, good or better in terms of usability. And I think that's one reason why it's even usability is hard to understand for a lot of people is that, it's like if you're doing three clicks instead of one click, or if you're doing a swipe instead of a tap, it's better for the user. It's easier. It's less painful. It's less cognitive overload, even if it's just like a teeny bit. But that multiple versions of that is what creates good usability. And multiple versions of not having that is what creates like the friction and the frustration and the stress and investment in trying to interact with technology. So that whole idea of interacting with content is, I think, an interesting one. It's also kind of a limited definition, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Another way I like to think about it is um, 
if you could create a system that cave a caveman and woman could understand because it's using what is natural to humans in the interface then that's a more natural system than a classic GUI, which, or even, you know, whatever systems we're using today, a caveman and woman might need training on it because it's just too foreign compared to the real world. So it's like getting interactivity to be more like the real world. So that's also where we're heading. Obviously, that applies completely to robotics and artificial intelligence, you know, that those two things support that completely. So I think you've brought up, yeah, some amazing points. And I'm interested in, because, you know, what, you, what you've touched on is um, I have fingerprints all over all of my screens here because my kids will come in and touch my laptop or touch my monitor, um, expecting it to be touchscreen because that's what they know. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a foreign concept to them to use a mouse or a touchpad to scroll on a screen. They, they're just, they're not accustomed to that. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing kind of like you talked about more and more integration of newies into everything uh, to the point where it is a, the, this idea of a graphical user interface where we're using uh, more of these traditional things that many of us are used to will probably go away at some point mm -hmm. and we're going to have more and more of these natural interfaces. What do you see as the evolution of that? Like what does that become for, uh, for, for the things that we're using or even the next generation of technology, whether that's robotics or AI or, um, you know, whatever's coming next, how, how do you see that evolving? Well, I think a really obvious thing is, uh, we're going to have androids that look like humans <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and interact with us like humans. Like that's definitely a goal. I think that um, there's situations where screens, things on screens are always going to be valuable, like certain kind of information. I mean, if we think about, um, you know, books are really valuable, chalkboards or whiteboards are really valuable, you know, spreadsheets are really valuable, like all these things that are about um, showing information in a representative way with drawings or numbers. Um, and also of course, text that all that, all those are valuable and they're not going to go away a hundred percent, but I do think that they're going to exist in ways that are just as painless as possible to interact with books are still really easy to interact with you know, um, I mean, they don't give you all the advantages of, you know, reading on a Kindle, but they still are super easy to interact with and comfortable. You know, I think seeing things like, um, electronic whiteboards that don't have too many gadgets <laughs> related to them is, you know, that's like a, a fairly natural way to go. Um, and, and like I said, I think we'll always have screens of some kind. They may eventually all be touch screens. Um, pretty much. I think it, it's going to be things that blend with the natural environment more or with the, um, with the physical environment more than they do now. They won't be this separate. Oh, here's a computer you know, here's a whiteboard. It'll just be a technology where every whiteboard is live and connected, you know, yeah. and, uh, you draw on it and that's it, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it's savable <laughs> or sendable. Yeah. No, I can definitely see that. Yeah. That so. sounds super exciting. Um, and I, I think, thinking through some of the potential applications of, of some of that is, is going to be fascinating to watch. And we're probably coming up on a lot of these things sooner than we think I would imagine. Um, as you kind of look back over you know, the things that you have, have worked on and, and maybe some of your career, is there anything that you maybe wish you would have known earlier uh, that you know now, or, or that you have learned as you've gone through your career? Not really. 
It's interesting. Not, not really. It's kind of interesting that a lot of the visions that have been put out there for the future are still valid. And, and I guess I'm thinking more about, you know, some of the more visionary researchers that kind of put forth ideas for, um, like ubiquitous computing, that those are real and potentially, you know, still evolving in that direction. I mentioned earlier how I feel like we were much more optimistic 25 years ago, and now people are really getting, um, there's a certain exhaustion level with technology. And, but I'm not sure that I would have wanted to know that early on. It's more like living through that process was just part of it, <laughs> you know? So, so I think the short answer is no, there isn't anything I wish I had known. <laughs> That's great. Uh, going kind of along those same lines, uh, you know, what advice would you give to somebody getting into UX or design uh, now or who is early in their career kind of uh, growing into it right now? I, I guess I would say um, uh, hopefully choose it because you because it's your passion, not because you think it's a good, well-paying job, because uh, I think that you'll have a less of a tendency to want to stick with it. If, <laughs> if you do it just for a job. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, realize that there's a lot to learn and that it's, um, that it's valuable to keep learning and, and have that kind of drive to want to keep learning. And like I said earlier, study, study up on sustainability and ethics because they're really important. And, um, there's really not enough attention paid to those. Absolutely. Well, Dorothy, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Um, I do have a couple uh, questions to wrap up, but before we do that, is there anything that we talked about or didn't get a chance to talk about that, that you want to add? I think that we actually covered everything that, yeah, I don't really have anything. Okay. Awesome. Well, you mentioned uh, towards the or at the very beginning that you are an avid reader. And so I'd love to to get uh, your thoughts on anything that you have read or maybe watched or listened to recently that you'd like to share or uh, recommend. Well, uh, so first I'll say I'm watching Succession, as is a lot of the world right now. <laughs> and I do think it's amazing. I think the writing is just really good on that show. It's very, very impressive. So I recommend it. Um, in terms of reading, I have, I am currently reading something called Super Intelligence and by somebody named Nick Bostrom. He's a, an AI expert and, um, it's kind of a heavy read very detailed and, and, and uh, a little bit dry, but it's essentially giving a, a very large overview of uh, the field of AI. He's very concerned about the danger. And so that's, that's what motivated him to write the book. And so that's a, a kind of major topic for him is we need to, make sure that we, um, do the right things in order to, uh, and, and actually what he's saying is we need to, um, instill artificial intelligence with human ethics in order to make it, uh, so that when it's more intelligent than us, then it takes care of us rather yeah. than destroys us. That's, that's his basic premise. <laughs> Which we there are some who are saying could be potentially already or you know coming up quickly so those are are very very valid points and super important we're going to add that i'm going to add that to my to my reading list i i think that's a that's a great one and i have not read that one yet so i love it <laughs> great uh great recommendation okay um and then are there any products that uh you're using now or uh 
have been using that you'd like to give a, a shout out to? They could be a digital product or a physical product, anything that uh, you've been liking. Well, my family has two plug-in EVs. They're, they're plug-in hybrids and they are absolutely amazing and fantastic. And I highly recommend they're both Toyotas. As it turns out, you know, just decided it was, it kind of worked for us. I know that a lot of people will say, well, you know, electric cars aren't really ready yet. Um, the technology's not there. Uh, they're overpriced. You have to wait for one, put an order in and wait for it, you know, so people sort of are lo looking for all these excuses to say, yeah, it's not, it's not time yet. I mean, first off, I feel like the tech, the products don't get to be really good until people start using them. So I'm an early adopter of uh, electric cars because I highly believe in them. And I feel like being an early adopter is, is really important in this case to push the technology along. But um, we feel like we just do so well with them, you know, in terms of not buying gas for a few months at a time. You know, we managed to yeah. just get by on the not huge amount of uh, electric uh, miles that there are on them, but we can make do with it for the most part. So I highly recommend that people get interested in electric cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And whenever I, this is probably another topic, but whenever I see those arguments, like we're, we're essentially arguing about that adoption curve, basically where, where we have the early adopters and I, it feels like everybody who's arguing is arguing basically in the, the, the idea that, they're not ready because the technology is not ready. But like you said, like the technology doesn't get ready until we push it further mm -hmm. so that, that it's there and, and more people can adopt it. And yep. it's, it's almost a chicken and egg process, but like there is, you know, once we can jump that chasm or that gap of, you know, both the technology and the people are ready, then you start to get more, more options, better options and more availability of places to charge and, and yep. just a more, mm -hmm all of the things become easier. So like, as we're able to push it forward, it becomes uh, less costly, less uh, onerous for everybody. And mm -hmm. so it, it's just yeah. better all around. Yeah. And even so, I mean, considering that, you know, we bought our first one two years ago, I don't in any way feel like we um, overpaid. Like, I feel like the benefit, the benefits of these vehicles has way outweighed what we paid for them. So yeah, it's got to feel great not having to go to the gas station and yeah, um, it very, feels very incredible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, when you add solar to it, then you feel really good because <laughs> you're just using the sun to charge up your car. To charge. Yep. Yep. <laughs> no, that that uh, more and more sounds like an amazingly good setup. So I, I yeah. definitely can understand. Well, Dorothy, this has been again, an amazing conversation. And I feel like we keep, we almost keep touching on things where it's like, we could go on for, for more. We could and more go time. on. <laughs> I know. And I absolutely love it. Um, but where can people find out more about you? Uh, the things that you're working on um, any, anything else? Well, so Boston UX website, ICS website. Uh, also, I'm on LinkedIn. So those are probably the best locations. Okay. And we will put all of those down in the show notes so you can check those out and check out uh, what Dorothy is working on and connect with her on LinkedIn. And Dorothy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for Thank all of you. your insights and for, for talking with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. <laughs> okay. And thank you again, everyone, for listening. And we will talk again next time. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. 
You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking, at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.